made a film called Pan, which had lost about $100 million. And I was suffering my own crisis of confidence and doubt in what I was doing and capable of doing. And I felt like giving up. And then this script came across my desk. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture. Winston Churchill once said, History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. You could say the same for Joe Wright, the filmmaker behind Pride and Prejudice, Anna Karenina, Atonement, and other films. His new film is about Churchill. It's called Darkest Hour. It's a very serious, very stormy look at one month in Churchill's life in 1940. And it's an interesting film for Wright because he's coming off of what was considered his least successful film, 2015's Pan. And he used that moment after that failure to recalibrate. He made an episode of the TV show Black Mirror. And then he pondered on what he was going to do next. And he saw some inspiration in Churchill. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Joe Wright. Very pleased to be joined by Joe Wright today. Joe, thanks for coming in. Uh, my absolute pleasure. Joe, you have a new film. It's called Darkest Hour. It is about World War II. This is not your first World War II film. And so what I want to know is why did you decide to return to this setting and time? Frankly, I was fascinated by the character I read on the page. I've, I've never been particularly interested in Winston Churchill. Um, he's not been a kind of hero of mine, but... Uh, I read this story about this funny man who had been through a long life of triumphs and disappointments. He'd got a lot wrong in his life, and yet he came to this moment in time and was the right person for the job that no one else could really do. And I was interested in the crisis of confidence that he suffered. I was interested in doubt and the idea that doubt is a key component to the attainment of wisdom. And I was interested in how uh, something like that, something that's generally considered negative, can be turned into something really positive. Why did that speak to you at this moment? Because I had made a film called Pan, which had lost about $100 million and had been slated, really, by um, most everyone. And I was suffering my own crisis of confidence and, uh, and doubt in what I was uh, doing and capable of doing. Um, and I felt like giving up. And then this script came across my desk and, and showed me that actually um, giving up was, was not an option. Was there a part of you that wanted to do something completely different from Pan because of that experience? Very much so. Yeah. I, um, I realized after Pan that um, I wasn't cut out necessarily for the, the kind of big studio movies. And I wanted to return to something uh, that was closer to my wheelhouse. I, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I'd pulled out of all the projects that I was attached to. Um, and thought that maybe I'd just make theatre instead and um, uh, and so on. And then I got this amazing script from Charlie Brooker, um, which was just people talking to each other in rooms. It totally inspired me and it fascinated me and it engaged my creativity in a way that had not been engaged for some time. And I remembered why I do what I do. and And that is to try and express cinematically the experience of trying to relate to other people. 
So you decided to continue to direct? Yeah, so I decided to keep doing it, and um, although I had no option, I had no choice but to keep doing it. Had Darkest um, Hour come across your desk at this point? And then whilst I was out in South Africa shooting the Black Mirror episode, Darkest Hour came across my desk. And I read it, and I found that I laughed, and I cried, and it was men in rooms talking to each other. The creative challenge of that thrilled me. Let's talk about that creative challenge. I'm mm. curious. This movie, like I said, is set in a time in which you've made other films, but the look of it is quite different. Mm. The style, even the execution. The movie has sort of a TikTok feel. Mm. How mm. did you go about setting up how to tell this story? Well, as a kind of reaction to what I've been doing before, including Pan, but also, you know, um, Anna Karenina and, and, and movies like that, I wanted to reinvent my aesthetic really and I wanted to pare everything back and to try and be as simple and as minimalist as possible. I was also listening to a lot of minimalist music at the time, Max Richter and Niels Fram and of course the great Philip Glass and so on and I wanted to try and achieve some kind of cinematic aesthetic equivalent to that music. I was very lucky to be working with a great DP called uh, Bruno de Benelli Right. Bruno's um, made Amelie, French DP. Yeah. yeah, and he's very rigorous. And so together we we developed a, a style that was trying to just be as simple and as honest and as dramatic as possible and as truthful as possible. How do you make a chamber piece like this propulsive? That is the thing that is interesting to me is this movie mm. has a rhythm and an energy even though it is, like you said, just people talking to each other in rooms. I'm always talking about rhythm, and, and I talk about rhythm on set a lot with the actors. Sometimes my notes to actors are less about emotional states or backstory. I'm often more kind of singing rhythms to them. Uh, I'm a terrible singer, but um, <laughs> singing rhythms to them that will um, express somehow what I'm trying to, to say. Does that come in line readings? How do you, how do, you do that? Uh, sometimes I do, but uh, I try hard not to. Film for me is is most like music. It happens in time, and and I think about it in time, um, uh, which is ironic because I'm dyslexic, and dyslexics um, have a problem with time. And images and sound are at the service of that time. Do you think that that has helped you in some way, being dyslexic, maybe with being able to communicate what you want because you don't, it's not as um, it's not as on the page for you at times. It's the way I think, you know, mm -hmm. and I think dyslexics have a problem understanding certain patterns. And so what I'm always trying to do is find my own patterns in images and sound and time. And I guess also, you know, when I was a kid uh, growing up, I watched a lot of television. I mean, like hours and hours and hours and hours of television. And, and then eventually I kind of found a way to read I'm still a very slow reader, but I found a way to read. That's an interesting thing. So when you receive a script now, how do you analyze it? How do you read it? Are you, are you marking it up and taking your time in that way? Or how, like, how do you respond to it? Slowly. My agent can read a script in 30 minutes. I'm always shocked by that and suspicious a little bit. How uh, closely is it being read? Yeah, is the exactly. Yeah. Um, whereas for me, it takes me about, if I don't get distracted, it takes me about four hours you know, to read a script. And I can always tell if it's a good script if I read it straight through um, without allowing distractions. And as I'm reading, I'm seeing it 
for instance, uh, with the opening of this movie, when we first see Winston Churchill, he's, he's in bed smoking a cigar and eating breakfast and, uh, and he's uh, dictating a speech or, or telegrams. And so I read that on the page and what I see in my mind is that um, his new secretary enters the room, the room is dark, uh, you don't see him and then a servant opens the curtains to reveal him and so you hear him before you see him. Let's talk about building Churchill. Mm. Gary Oldman is playing Churchill here. This is an extraordinary performance. Obviously, it's already drawing a lot of raves. Mm. But there's a lot that must go into determining not just the performer but the way that you're going to build this character, right? Mm. So what is the first thing you think of when you're reading the script about how to make him come to life? Gary was not necessarily a very obvious choice for Churchill. But the obvious choices didn't excite me and I wasn't sure that I'd go and see a movie about Churchill with them playing Churchill. Um, In fact, there have been some films with yeah. maybe some obvious choices yeah. about Churchill yeah. recently. Exactly. And so therefore, it would have felt like I was just retreading the same path. Eric Fellner and I had the idea of Gary. And that worked in my mind because I saw Churchill as being quite intense, uh, borderline manic, um, uh, and then these kind of great depressions that he suffered as well, almost bipolar. But this intensity of energy, this dynamism, um, this kind of... People seem to think that, that, you know, the classic image of Churchill is that he was born in a bad mood. Um, but but that's not what I saw, you know. Um, I think he didn't suffer fools lightly. Uh, but so, so Gary is someone who f- throughout his career has shown us some of the most extraordinary, intense performances. Um, and he had the right energy. And you can either cast someone who, you know, has the... the the physical um, look of the character or you can cast someone who has the essence of the character and I think it's you know you can fake the exterior but you can't fake the interior necessarily Gary had the essence we started by talking about the way Churchill walked and he uh, smoked a lot and he had this kind of snuffle in his breath Mm -hmm. Um, that was the first thing we talked about I took a picture of, of Gary walking as Churchill in one of those early sessions uh, and sent it to Dario Marinelli, um, and Your said, composer. my composer, and said, uh, "This is you should write a piece um, based on this photograph." This is way before we start shooting, and it needs a kind of TikTok tempo rhythm. Do you make the performer aware of things like that when you say, "I'm a visual visualizing it being kind of a TikTok feel here," and so you'll know when you're when you're walking, when you're acting? Absolutely, I, I, I find it's best to be as open as possible. And is um, and engage everyone in all aspects of the movie. I mean, I think uh, uh, you want everyone to feel a sense of ownership, especially with someone like Gary. You know, Nil by Mouth is one of my favourite films. Um, so it's the first time I've worked with an actor who is uh, um, a, also a great filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And so he understands all of that stuff, you know, and he he gets it and he enjoys it as well. It becomes fun. So it was it was an incredibly close collaboration, both in terms of what he was doing and really what I was doing as well. Working uh, you know, with prosthetics like this and this transformation that, that you guys create, did you have to be conjo- cajoled into doing that? I mean, that's, a, that's a, a big commitment to spend months of your life putting on all this makeup every day and having this character in this specific way. Not really. I mean, I think Gary enjoys, as we've seen from his body of work, he enjoys transformative uh, uh, performances, characters. It's kind of what he does. What's the biggest challenge about making a movie about real-life events? You've done it a couple of times. 
problem is is that you can't really change those events mm-hmm. um and so you know in a movie like the soloist there wasn't the happy ending that might have been expected of that movie um and i was determined not to to kind of you know not to pretend that nathaniel Ayres ended up playing you know first cello for the la philharmonic the happy ending was something smaller and simpler it was just friendship did you ever have a desire to change anything about the way that Churchill did what he did at this time? Yeah, I mean, the underground scene. What you're trying to do is attain, you know, you're not necessarily wanting the facts, you're wanting the truth. And they sometimes are different things or can be expressed differently. We know that he would go AWOL often, and he did go AWOL on that day. We don't know where he went. Um, we also know that during the war, um, he spent a lot of time uh, meeting members of the public, especially those uh, victims of the Blitz, and that he would often kind of seek their counsel. Uh, and he would also sometimes have a little cry. Um, he was known for kind of crying openly in public. Um, and so all of those elements, which I felt were really vital to uh, the film, worked in that, in that scene in the underground. How do you prepare for a movie like this? Are you a voracious researcher? Do you have do you interview people? You know, when you have real life events like this, I do a lot of reading. I watch as many sort of Pathé newsreels and and real footage as possible. I spent some great time at the Imperial War Museum in London, which has an amazing archive of thirty five mil prints um, that you watch on a steam back, which was heaven. Um, uh, really amazing. <laughs> amazing footage. Like if you if you ask for May 1940 and they have footage that, that is English, footage that's French and footage that is uh, German. Um, and it was very interesting to see the styles, the difference in the styles. The German stuff is all very dynamic and exciting and kind of uh, extraordinary angles and close-ups, Dutch cameras and all of that stuff. And then you look at the French stuff and um, it's very poetic and there's kind of, you know, willows over ponds and sort of dreamy. Um, and then you look at the uh, English stuff and it's really like observational and um, a wide shot of a street and it holds and it holds, and then a man crosses the road, and then it cuts. And it's like, wow, okay. Um, a nation has its styles, uh, right? A nation does. Uh, but yes, yeah, so what I do is I spend a lot of time reading and, and watching stuff. I also spend a lot of time looking at contemporary work, by which I mean I have a great visual reference researcher. And some of the most important time I spend is lying on the sofa, uh, staring at the ceiling in a state of relaxation, uh, listening to music and thinking about the film. Visualizing. Visualizing the film. That's, that's very important. People don't understand that bit. They think you're just lying on the sofa. It's really hard I support work. you. I yeah. believe that that's meaningful. <laughs> yeah. um, people always <laughs> describe your films as painterly. They say Joe Wright is a painterly filmmaker. Do you like that? Do you like to be described in ways like that? No, I, I don't actually. Um, I, I, I'd, like my, I'd like my work to be described as cinematic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't want to, I don't want my films to look like paintings. I want them to look like cinema. But that's okay. I mean, it's not, I, 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 don't, I don't hold anything against that. You know, I'm, I listen, I'll, I'll take compliments wherever they mm-hmm. come. But yeah, no, I, 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 I try to make, as I say, I try to make my films as um, inherently cinematic as possible, uh, which means, you know, 
as Tarkovsky put it, sculpting in time. Oh, it's just always interesting when an adjective is affixed to a filmmaker and then you yeah. just have to use that word every time you start writing about their films. Yeah, it's okay. I don't, you know, I mean, it's very nice. Uh, uh, I, I, I'd rather people said my films were painterly than rubbish um, <laughs> um, or ugly, you know, and I like beauty. I find there's not enough beauty in the world. And so if I can bring a little more beauty to the world, then that's great. I would hope it's cinematic beauty rather mm-hmm. than painterly beauty. I think that I think, you know, one of the problems with, with film is that it's borrowed from so many other art forms and it's still trying to find its own inherent aesthetic it's still relatively new right yeah in the, in exactly. the span of time it's yeah, what, yeah. 150 years absolutely. old. absolutely i read a lot of, a lot of bresson you know his um, mm-hmm. notes on the cinematographer mm-hmm. and um uh and and i keep that by my bed whenever i'm shooting um and each morning i'll i'll read you know a little piece or two and that helps me remember that i'm making film not painting or theater or you know are you able to then communicate that to your DP or something and say, I was reading this, or will they be like, oh, that's pretentious that you're trying to tell me that? No, do I sound really pretentious? Not I at maybe all. do. I'm talking, you know, this is stuff, you know. I'm, but I, in a workspace, you know, yeah. there's like a thing. It, making films is also is very physical, is very yeah. mechanical in some respects, too. Oh, no, it's my sets are very emotional places. Yeah? Yeah. No, I. I How do you I, do that? I keep a loving atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I don't like any shouting. I play lots of music. Um, I try and give all the crew a sense of ownership of the film. Uh, we're making a film together. I sit beside the camera when shooting. Um, I don't go to the monitor or hide away. It's a very tight and intimate space. If there's a scene that is emotional, I, I, I cry, and I'm not kind of embarrassed of, of, of that. Um, if there's a scene that's very energized, I play loud Chemical Brothers music and I dance, you know. What was the soundtrack on this film? We played Major Laser Bubble Butt a lot. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you should see Gary as Winston dancing to Bubble Butt. <laughs> it's really good. That's very nice. But I, I kind of use music to express what I'm trying to do, the atmosphere of the scene, also to the periphery of the set, because mm-hmm. there are all these people who, electricians or the caterers or whatever, who aren't in the center of it. And I want them to have an understanding of the atmosphere. There's a lovely day in the House of Commons when um, we had 500 extras on set and we all, the entire room, sang together the Beatles' Hey Jude. And that was at the beginning of the day at like 7.30 in the morning. And, uh, and, and we, would, we, we sang that just prior to Gary arriving on set. And then as the kind of final chorus came in, Gary arrived and there was this enormous swell of cheering and singing for Gary. Now that may sound just like fun, which it was, but also what it does is it creates an atmosphere of collaboration, of ownership and support for Gary. So Gary walks onto this set and has this feeling that everyone is there for him and that everyone is there to support him. And that means that he's able to feel free and loved and supported. That is a nifty trick. Maybe in my day job, I will start applying the Friday sing-along. Yeah, it's really good. Sounds inspiring. Yeah. So this film, in part, uh, chronicles the the Dunkirk moment as well. Obviously, mm. there was a film about Dunkirk made mm. by Christopher Nolan this year. You know, I, I know that the two films are essentially – they work well as companions in some ways. Mm. Your film is not about Dunkirk, but mm. um, it does feature some of that. But when you learn that Nolan is working on a movie that is about that in some respect, or do you even learn that? Are you keeping track of these things? And then does that affect the decisions that you make? I try not to keep track of these things because mm-hmm. I think it's really dangerous – uh, to compare oneself to other 
artists. You know, I don't read the the trades or anything, but obviously there was a certain point when one became aware that that was happening and, and one was kind of a bit nervous about it, worried that there might be a Churchill in the movie. Obviously, I have huge admiration and respect for, for Nolan, and so um, it's going to be a good film, I know that. I purposefully didn't watch the film until I'd finished ours, uh, and when I did, I discovered what I think is an extraordinary piece of work, and I and I and I was incredibly impressed by it. And I was really interested in the idea that we were both, it seems, going for something quite minimalist as well. Sometimes people start to think that there's not enough space, you know, for it's all a competition. And but success is, you know, is not finite. There's there's space for all of us. And I applaud any good films being made because the more good films are made, the more people are going to see them. Mm-hmm. You've worked on a few films that have been nominated for Oscars. I think that there's a decent chance that this film's going to be nominated for Oscars and BAFTAs and Golden Globes mm-hmm. and all those other things. Particularly your team, Sarah Greenwood, Jacqueline Duran, who both worked on this film, mm-hmm. um, have been nominated. You yourself have not been nominated. No. Is that something that you think about? Do you do you aspire to that? When Atonement got seven nominations, including Best Picture, and I didn't get nominated, it didn't really bother me at the time. And then it kind of gnawed at me a little bit and so I had to examine that if I was nominated uh, that would be great I'd like that not least because it would enable me to be more daring and bold with the next film Mm -hmm. the process is what I love you know I love making films I love 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 the process of making a movie Um, and so everything is aimed at being in the position to be able to do that an Oscar nomination uh, allows one, you know, to make another film. I remember when I made Pride and Prejudice, my producer said, uh, well, you know, only only one in ten first-time filmmakers ever makes a second movie. And I still have that hanging over it's me. It's a great way to psych someone out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, right-size it. It would be really nice. It's not validation of a lifetime, nor is it nothing, mm-hmm. you know. You mentioned Pride and Prejudice, which is a great film and was very successful. You know, mm. It was a box office hit, I think, unexpectedly to some people. Yeah. Uh, does the box office um, matter to you? Has it, the way you think about it changed at all over the years? And do you, do you, do you focus on those things? I don't. You know, I don't like follow the numbers and the tracking and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it would send me mad. Um, uh, I'm obsessive. And so um, if I allow that obsession in, I would, I would, um, uh, I would be in trouble. But it definitely means something because, again, it's about whether you get to make another film or not. But I feel like I have a responsibility to bring back a 100% profit. Um, And if I can do that, I'm happy. Uh, There does seem at the moment that, uh, you know, people want a kind of 5,000% profit. And I'm not really interested in that responsibility. I don't, I don't, you know, if I can get get 100% profit, I'm good. So no superhero movies coming from you anytime soon? I don't think so. I mean, I think to make those films, you have to have loved them as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I didn't love them as a kid. You were watching Kieslowski as a 15-year-old, so... Yeah. I was watching drama and loving drama. Um, I was watching Alan Clark mm-hmm. and Ken Loach as well. You know, I was watching Robert Altman, Scorsese, David Lynch and Coppola. And those are the people that I aspired to be. The way that a lot of the some of the filmmakers that you named and a lot of filmmakers now are getting a chance to tell more stories is in, in different forms, different shapes. Sometimes that's on Netflix. Sometimes it's on a streaming service. Mm. Is that something that you've considered diving into at any point in your career? Yeah. I mean, 
Black Mirror was Netflix, um, and I loved it. It does feel more like a sketch than a... Than a painting? Than a painting. <laughs> oh, look at me. Uh, yeah, never say never. The experience that the audience have is is limited. I, I personally love sitting in a cinema with a group of other people, a kind of temporary community of people, um, and experiencing something as a, as a community, collectively. Um, and, and that's really really an important element of of film for me and but I don't I don't I'm not kind of snobbish about it what I see happening on television is is amazing and um, and it's great great storytelling you mentioned the desire to be able to just make the next film so I'm curious how you decide which film to make next you have another project lined up right now uh, yeah, I do. I'm hoping to make an adaptation of John Williams' movie, uh, Stoner. Mm-hmm. And how do I decide? After Pride and Prejudice, there were two scripts that I was thinking about or two pieces of material that I was thinking about. One was Birdsong by Sebastian Falks and the other was Atonement. And my very smart agent, who can read a script in 30 minutes, said, do the one that you feel like you know a secret about. And it was immediately clear therefore, that I should do atonement. I had a kind of... It was as if I knew a secret about it. Can you tell us that secret? No, it, it's not like a secret that... It's, it's like I, I can see it. Just that feeling. Yeah, that feeling. I can see it. It's a sensation. And I don't necessarily think that anyone else would have the same sensation or the same feeling. Uh, if I read a script and I think, yeah, I could do that, and it's really good, it's a brilliant script, and I can imagine 10 other directors doing the same thing with it, then I won't be interested. Um, but if there's, if there's, if I have a kind of, if I have a sensation that, that, um, that allows, or it can just be an image. It can be a moment in time. What is Stoner saying to you right now? Why, why that book? Ooh, it's a heavy, it's a, it's a heavy one. It's quite a midlife book. It's about finding the beauty in the details of life and about disappointment and love it's, and it's about grace. I think Stone is about grace, and I'd like to make a film about grace. So I always like to wrap up these conversations with a question about what's the last great thing that you have seen? Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh, yeah, tell me about that. I loved that as well. Oh, my God, it's a beautiful film. I mean, just, you know, deeply, deeply frightening. Yes. On a deep psychological, subconscious level. I'm fascinated by how he gets those those strange, almost disassociated performances out of people. I've never met him in Yogos, and I'd, I'd love to and, and talk to him about that. Apparently, I read that he, or someone told me that he, that he um, writes the scripts in Greek and then has them translated, literally translated, and that adds to that Gives kind it that of, stilted quality. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, which I think um, is possibly interesting. That, I think, is one of my favourite films of the year. But they're very, they're, they're many. I love Lady Bird. Greta is a is a heroine of mine. I adore her and I adore her work. And really lovely to see a proper filmmaker. You know, she's she's thinking about form rather than just performance or or words. What's know? it like to see Saoirse in, in a role like that? Having worked with her ten years ago now, it's a bit odd. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not ten years because Hannah. Oh, of course, right. sure. But so, but, but you, but, you yeah, came no, across her at such a young age. Yeah, and, no, it's amazing, and she's and she's still. When she was 11, she kind of appeared as a fully formed actress. Her talent was so extraordinary. And usually I'm not really into this idea of kind of, you know, the romantic idea of genius and and a light shines down on somebody and they are chosen and gifted. 
But my God, if if I if I ever did, then it would be her. Joe, congratulations on Darkest Hour, and thank you for doing this. Oh, my my absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.